Hello, my name is Jody Lemot, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today I'm going to be interviewing Matt Harry. Uh, he's a filmmaker, and he's also author of the Codex Arcanum series. And we're going to be talking about the Graveyard Book, uh, the great Newberry book by the great and talented Neil Gaiman. I haven't mentioned it lately, but part of the reason for the title of this podcast is due to a quote often attributed to Neil Gaiman. Uh, the quote is, a book is a dream you hold in your hand. Now, it is very possible Mr. Gaiman never actually said that, uh, but I still like the quote. Uh, like always, we're going to start with a poem, and the timely title of today's poem is We're Running Out of Toilet Paper. The, this poem was written by Ken Nesbitt, and it's copyright 2020 Ken Nesbitt's PoetryForKids.com, and I found it on his website, which is, of course, PoetryForKids.com. We're running out of toilet paper, paper towels, too. We haven't got much Kleenex left. I'm not sure what we'll do. We tried to buy some yesterday. We went to every shop, but all the shelves were barren, from the bottom to the top. We called our friends to see if they had extra we could borrow, but they said they have just enough to last until tomorrow. Our roll is almost empty now. A solitary square is hanging on the holder, and it's way too small to share. I hope we'll find some paper soon, or other kind of wipers. If not, I'm told I'll have to use my baby brother's diapers. My guest today is Matt Harry, filmmaker and author of the Codex Arcanum series, which includes the books Sorcery for Beginners and the most recent novel, Cryptozoology for Beginners. You can find Matt's website at www.mattharrywork.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Matt. Thanks for having me. Now, as I mentioned, you have this series, this uh, Arca the Codex Arcanum series. Can you talk a little bit about what that series is? Sure. So... I've always been, when I was growing up, I was always a big fan of fantasy books, anything magic related, uh, things like the Goonies, you know, group of kids kind of going off, discovering treasure or another world or something like that. Uh, so I always wanted to write something like that, but, you know, felt like it didn't really have an in for kind of a long time. And you know, love the Harry Potter books, loved all the, the kind of new middle grade stuff that was coming out. And then one day, I, I know the actual date <laughs> that I came up with it. It was like uh, April 24th, 2012. I was eating lunch and I was reading a copy of my wife's book, which was Understanding Einstein. It was like kind of one of those like for dummies guides, you know, where it takes a really complicated topic and breaks it down and explains it. And I'm sitting here reading this thinking, man, if they can explain Einstein to somebody like me who never even took a physics class, what if they could do this for something else, like something impossible, like magic? And as soon as I had that thought, I was like, oh my God, this feels like an idea. And I actually thought of originally of it as maybe a screenplay because I was mainly a, a screenwriter at the time. And I went in and I pitched to my agent and he said, yeah, I love this idea, but nobody's going to buy it as a spec screenplay. Uh, because at this time, you know, if you look at the movies being made nowadays, they're all based on something, whether it's a video game or comic book or whatever. And he said, yeah, if this was based on a book, uh, it would be great. But, you know, it's just a script. And so I was kind of driving home and I was upset. I was like, he doesn't understand how how fun this idea could be. And I was like, well, I'm just going to write a book of it then. <laughs> and cut to 
four years later, <laughs> it was, it was a, a long process of, of writing and it took me, you know, I, I had written a, a couple novels before. I wrote a novel when I was in seventh grade, almost like as a dare to myself, because <laughs> I'd read, I don't know if you know the book, uh, This Can't Be Happening at MacDonald Hall. I'm not familiar with that. Corman. No. So it's by Gordon Corman, who's still a big writer oh, yes, today. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But he wrote this book when he was in seventh grade, and it got published. And I remember reading that and thinking, like, man, if this kid could publish a book in seventh grade, I can do the same thing. And so I went through and, in like, you know, I wrote, cranked out 12 teeny tiny chapters in the space of a couple months when I was in seventh grade. And, of course, I never finished it, never published it, never sent it off or anything. And then it wasn't until – I, I went to school. I got into movie making. I was out living in Los Angeles, kind of working in the film and TV business. And I happened to be working on a project. And I thought, you know, I should write another book. Like, I haven't done that in a long time. I should do it as an adult. And so I wrote my first novel kind of as an adult. And that was a big learning process. And then that nothing really happened with that one. But then when I had this idea for Sorcery for Beginners, I was like, I think that I can – let me try this again. And so I went back and I kind of you know wrote the book, but it was a it was a little it was hard to figure out because the idea of the basic idea for people who don't know is it's about you know a kid a thirteen year old boy named Owen McCready who moves to Las Vegas he moves to a new town and he kind of stumbles into this strange interesting bookshop called Codex Arcanum and he finds this book called Sorcery for Beginners which is like an easy to read for dummy style help guide to learning magic. And so he starts to read through the book and learn spells and partners up with his new friends to help him figure it out. And then of course attracts the attention of some bad guys who want to take the book for themselves. So I was working on the book and it was fun. And then I kind of realized a couple drafts in, like I wonder if the book should actually be laid out like a help guide like as a way, another way to kind of like make it different from a lot of stuff that was, was out there. And so once I had that idea, that was kind of like a big restructuring where I had to figure out, you know, how could I make this look like a, for dummies guide? So I have all these little sidebars in the book with little extra information that expands out the world. And then I said to, you know, my, my poor wife who helps me kind of figure out the graphic design, she's a graphic designer. I said, what if we added some spell pages too? And she's like, okay, let's figure out what the spells are. And then I was like, what if we added some illustrations? So it just was, it was kind of a long process of figuring out what it wanted to be. Um, But then, yeah, I finally kind of finished it in 2016 and then started sending it around and ended up publishing it. It was much more than a novel, just a sort of expanded from the basic novel format to become, like you said, footnotes and uh, illustrations and uh, a, a guidebook to and he didn't know that until he actually had the first draft down. I had, yeah, I had a couple drafts. I just had the story and I was just kind of following Owen's story. And then once I had this idea of, well, if the book itself was actually like a guidebook, that would make it much more immersive and we could expand the world and learn about, you know, the bad guys in the book are called Euclidians. We could learn about the Euclidians. We could learn about the people behind Codex Arcanum. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of anything, you know, it's kind of a buzzword nowadays, this immersive word, but I love those kinds of experiences, you know, where you can go to some place and feel like you really are walking into 
in other world. And so that was something I wanted to do with the books. And the latest one is called uh, Cryptozoology for Beginners. And uh, what would a reader expect um, who's read the first one they find in the, the second novel? Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to do with the second book, again, I love the Harry Potter series, but I always felt like there's seven Harry Potter books and Harry is the protagonist in every single one. It's like every year, yet again, he's the only one who can solve the problem. And that kind of started to feel a little unrealistic to me. I always wanted like a Hermione book, you know, I'd love to see what Hermione's up to. And so that was always when I wanted to do the second book in the series, I thought, oh, it'd be really cool if we stayed in the same group of friends, but kind of jumped to another perspective. And so the second book is centered around one of Owen's kind of three original friends who kind of helps him figure out this guidebook, whose name is Trish Kim. And so we see Owen and we see their other friend, Perry, but we kind of get the perspective on Owen from Trish's point of view, which was really interesting to write from. And then Trish is kind of dealing with her own issues in this book. And the whole group of them have been kind of tasked by their mentor, Euphemia Whitmore, who's kind of given them these books to figure out why the cryptids are the magical creatures of the world are kind of disappearing. And so they go on this kind of long worldwide road trip to try and track down, you know, magical creatures and figure out why the Euclidians are taking them. It's an interesting thing about Hermione. It's something I thought about before. I mean, she's obviously the most talented one and yet doesn't seem to have, and it'd be interesting to have a Hermione book, which is something I think what you had in mind here. Or at least part yeah. way, part way, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so the idea for the, I've got two more kind of strong ideas for the the series right now. The next book would be about time travel, and it would center on Perry. She would be like the point of view character. And then the the fourth book, I had the idea of maybe like every chapter we'd kind of go to one of the kids' perspectives. Um there's also like one of the things when I had the idea for this series, I, I wrote something down in the first book, which was like all the different types of magic stuff they can study. And I was like, what would be the fun topics? And I just made a list of like time travel, astral projection, alchemy, you know, all these things. And I was, then I was looking at it going, Oh, this could, this could actually, each of these could potentially be a book, but you know, I don't want to overwhelm myself too much. Sure. And those other books are just in the idea stage right now. Yeah, the the time travel one is kind of, I have an, an outline for it, a pretty well thought out outline. I haven't jumped into writing it yet because Crypto Zoology for Beginners just came out a couple months ago. And one of the things that happened kind of ironically was we optioned the rights to the series to a production company to do as a TV show. And so I just... Um, I've started writing the pilot for that. So that's been kind of my focus right now. But it, it's kind of ironic that it kind of came full circle <laughs> from being that conversation with my film agent back in the day. It was like, well, no one's going to buy this because it's not based on a book. So I wrote the book and now here we are kind of adapting it as a TV show. Oh, so it's all very exciting. Yeah, I mean, it, we'll never know. Like, it's been really fun to adapt it. It's kind of an interesting chance to revisit the story and the characters especially knowing now what I know having thought later on in the series, you never know with kind of film and TV. It's, it's like such a, 
such a crapshoot, almost like winning the lottery, it seems like, for to go all the way through a development phase to something actually getting on the air. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But it's been really fun to adapt it. Would you like to share part of um, uh, one of the books? Sure. Um, I'll read a, I have a short passage here from Cryptozoology for Beginners. And so one of the things we did, for people who don't know, cryptozoology is kind of the study of kind of mythical creatures. And I adapt that slightly in the books for to cover magical creatures, you know, creatures like the Sphinx and the Unicorn. And we wanted to get some that were like, you know, the really well-known ones. So in the prologue, we have a, a new character we introduced called Fergus, who encounters a new cryptid uh, that people will probably recognize. So I'll just read a section of that from the beginning. A shape coalesced in the mist. It was long-necked and easily 10 meters tall, moving at a speed of 30 or 40 knots. Unlike a motorboat, however, it was completely silent. Also unlike a motorboat, it had eyes. The creature, there was no other word for it, came to a stop a few meters from the oil rig and looked down at Fergus. Its head was the size of a small car, and its body was covered in brownish-green leathery skin, like a seal's. Its eyes glowed yellow in the mist. The creature sized up the teenager and then charmingly sneezed. Nessie, said Fergus in awe. Is it really you, then? The creature stared back at him, cocking her head to the side, as if she could understand. She, for some reason it felt like a female, blinked her glowing eyes. Fergus stretched a trembling hand toward the cryptid, and a mud pump kicked on behind him, startling both boy and beast. Nessie's eyes went wide, and she gave another teeth-rattling cry. The sound was so loud, it knocked Fergus backward. The phone slipped from his hand, clattering on the metal grating of the oil platform. Instinctively, he reached for it, his eyes dropping from the massive dark shape before him. By the time he recovered his phone and looked up again, the creature had vanished. So that's from the prologue. I would say those descriptive passages can be challenging, but also very fun to write. Yeah, it was, it was one of those things that when I first started working on it, I, I didn't even really think of it. It was like, oh, I'm just going to talk about all these mythical creatures. No big deal. But then I realized I have to kind of, I had to find a way to kind of make them my own in this. Because um, you don't want to do something that somebody's seen before. And then I also realized it made me appreciate animals in a different way. Like I, I have a cat. But I found myself walking around studying animal behavior as I was writing this, trying to figure out how would I, like, how do different animals express their personalities? You know, because they don't have the ability to talk and we don't describe animals in the same way that we describe people. And so it was, it was very interesting. It made me kind of see things, see that in a different way. It was definitely one of the interesting challenges of this. So even if you're describing something that you wouldn't find on Earth, you still want to have a frame of reference uh, for what people are familiar with. Right, yeah. So finding some way of like, how do you kind of compare size when you're talking about, you know, because if a person you can say, oh, they're shorter, they're tall. For a creature that's the size of like a school bus, what do you use to compare that to? You know, how big is the head? Is the head the size of a car? Is it the size of a boat? What kind of a boat? You know, so yeah, it's interesting. Now, the book you picked out as one of your uh, particular favorite uh, books for young readers is the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, which was uh, first published in uh, 2008 and um, also won the Newbery Prize, I believe, the following year. Uh, 
uh, for readers who haven't had a chance to to read this book yet, can you talk a little bit of what it's about? Absolutely. So actually, when uh, you scheduled me to do the podcast, I remember looking down the list of previous episodes because I had several books kind of come to mind. And then I looked on the list and was like, oh, that one, that one, that one. Like a lot of them had kind of been taken. I listened to those episodes. But this, this book was probably on my – it was in my like the top three or four that immediately came, came to mind. Um, I've always been a big fan of Neil Gaiman, particularly his writing. Um, he's, he's just amazing with his prose and his voice. But I think for me, this book is probably my favorite of his because I just think it's the best marriage of like his sensibility and kind of a a concept. And he executes it so kind of simply and beautifully. Some of his other books like, you know, Anansi Boys and American Gods, I like, but they also feel like a little kind of, I, I don't know, like overstuffed or, you know, a little convoluted in a way. And this one is just so nice and simple and pure. It's basically a gothic redo of the Jungle Book. And he talks in the acknowledgments in the back about what an inspiration the Jungle Book was. But instead of a little boy being raised by the animals in the jungle, it's about a, a little boy whose family gets killed and he wanders into a graveyard and he ends up being raised by the ghosts and the resident vampire of the graveyard. And so it kind of goes from... Uh, when he's about one year old all the way up until kind of young adulthood when he leaves. And he does this great thing where we kind of check in every chapter. There's just like a little episode of his life and he might be a couple years older and he encounters something in the graveyard or some problem outside the graveyard. And it's just such a a lovely, simple metaphor for kind of growing up. And it was interesting reading it now because when I first read it, um, it was one of those things I was, I was traveling. Actually, my wife and I were on vacation. We were taking what people call a baby moon, um, where we were in Europe. We went to France and Paris and Italy cause my wife was pregnant. And so I had not had children yet. And I picked up the book at Shakespeare and company, which I had forgotten. I, w- I opened it up kind of for this podcast and it had the stamp from Shakespeare and company in Paris. And I remember getting on the train and literally like finishing it in almost a single sitting. It was just, and I was like crying by the end, you know, and my wife is looking over at me and she's like, I'm supposed to be the emotional one. What are you doing? <laughs> um, Cause she was pregnant at the time. But uh, so it was so interesting rereading it now because I identified so much more strongly this time around with the people raising the boy and the boy's name is nobody Owens. Everyone calls him bod. And I identified so much more strongly with Silas, who's kind of his guardian, uh, instead of, you know, Bagheera, he's got this vampire that's watching over him. And it's just, you can feel almost as soon as the, the boy gets taken in, you can feel the sadness that Silas has of knowing one day he's going to have to say goodbye to this kid. And I just felt that in every page. And it, I don't know if this is true or not, but it made me think this must be in a way like Neil Gaiman writing this, to his kids and thinking about parenthood and and what a thing it is to raise a a child and put so much of yourself into that period of like 10 to 14 years. And then that person goes off and they go off into the world and you kind of, they're out of your hands at that point. 
And there's such a melancholy of that that I, I find so lovely. Yeah. Like you said, despite the unusual setting of this, this is very much a coming-of-age novel. We get to see him actually from a baby uh, mm-hmm. uh, from the, until he goes up, I think, uh, the age of 15 or 16. I can't remember what. And he does change. Uh, we get to even the, it's not a very it's not a long novel by any means, uh, no. but we definitely get to see the changes that he goes through um, from the beginning to the end. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I remember I, as I was rereading it this week, he, there's a section where he goes to school because he hasn't been around kids his age. He's like, I want to go and get go to school like real kids. And he does such a great job of making Bod immensely likable and he i was studying it like how does he do this <laughs> you know because and it's just with very little it's like you suddenly are rooting for this kid um i think for re- the first time in the book before it's like he's kind of young he gets into trouble he doesn't really know who he is and it, this is his first instance of kind of really being finding morality and it was such a likable interesting thing that he captured there's something neil gaiman said that i think about all the time and I noticed it as I was reading this, where he said, uh, you know, you don't have to describe a house when you're writing, because we all know what a house looks like. You need to tell me how, as a writer, how a house is different, how your house is different. And I, I just think about that constantly. I think that's so wise and interesting. That's a great piece of writing advice. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned before uh, the the other character, Silas, who has this sort of um guardian mentoring relationship and silas is an uh an unusual character uh we're not told what he is but i think we can as we're reading along we can guess uh what sort of something a <laughs> silas mm-hmm. uh, might really be and uh you can talk a little bit about what silas is and what he brings to bod uh and when as bod is growing up and how that relationship sort of um develops as well yeah so bod ends up he kind of gets adopted by two ghosts in the graveyard, Mr. And Mrs. Owens, who are kind of his parents. But then all the ghosts have this big debate at the beginning about, well, how we need someone else who can help raise the kid because the ghost can't go out in the world. And so they happen to have this resident of the graveyard. And as you say, they never, Neil Gaiman never says the word vampire in the entire novel, which is I think kind of amazing. And he lives in the graveyard and he kind of volunteers like I can go out into the world and bring food to this kid and get clothes if he needs clothes. Um, and the way Neil Gaiman describes him, he's always like, so he's like caught between two worlds because he's undead. He's like, not, he can see all the ghosts, but he's not a ghost. He can interact with living people like Bod, but he's not living. And there's this, this great sadness to him. And again, I thought it was such a, an ingenious metaphor to have a vampire as a parent because it does feel very much like when you have kids and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's like you kind of, your life changes in an interesting way where now it's like your primary focus becomes this kid in your life. And you know, my wife and I joke, we go out to to dinner, you get seated in like the kids section of the restaurant, like away from (laughs) people without kids. And you know, your kids suddenly Friday night becomes totally different. You don't go out on Friday nights necessarily anymore. If you do, it's a big expensive endeavor. (laughs) You know, you got a babysitter. And so it's just such an interesting choice to have, because he could have had it be a ghost, but I thought it was ingenious to have this other character who's kind of caught between these two worlds. Mm -hmm. 
And he's also a character that's both, you know, has a great deal of humanity, despite being a vampire, but there's a certain um, element of danger uh, to him you get a sense of. So that sort of contrast there as well. Yeah, he says that multiple times. There's multiple passages in the book where Bod asks a question or he disobeys and there's a, a phrase like, he saw for a moment how scary Silas could be. And I thought that was really interesting. Again, like in the Jungle Book, he's, his guardian is Bagheera, like a, I don't know if it's a puma or um, a panther, probably a panther. And it's like, this is dangerous for this kid. This, you know, this is a wild animal that could eat him up. And Silas has kind of the same menace and danger p- potential to him. Mm. As you mentioned, it, it sort of has this parallels uh, deliberately so to the Jungle Book, and it it does have a certain episodic quality. Although there is actually, you know, there is a plot and there is a resolution and a conflict um, that goes on. But the, uh, many of the chapters have a certain sort of. They can be sort of read all, all on their own. And, you know, yeah. you have the kidnapping by the ghouls, dealing with the school bullies, the, the dance macabre. Uh, did you have a particular favorite episode uh, in the in the novel? I think as I was reading it through this time, I, it, what stuck with me when I first read it was just the overall kind of sadness, kind of melancholy feel to it. This time, I think I, I really liked the adventurous aspect. So I really liked the school bully section, as you say, where he goes to school, I think because, you know, I wish I maybe had that confidence (laughs) and that uh, self um, self power that I think Bod has in that section. He's just very, he understands what the right thing is and he has no problem kind of standing up to these bullies. But I also think Neil Gaiman did a great job writing from the bully's perspective, like showing that they're not, they weren't like stock bullies they were interesting in that like the one kid has like no imagination. All he understands is punching people. But then his female friend is like a thinker and she kind of understands how to manipulate people more. And I thought that was really well done too. So that was probably my favorite section reading it through this time. Mm-hmm. Now there's not a sequel to this book and I imagine there never will be. And that's probably for the best. But do you ever think about what happens to Bod after he leaves the graveyard for good? What his <laughs> life might be like? I know it's so interesting, right? Because he has, he really has this, uh, these amazing abilities that he's been trained to do, which he kind of starts to lose as he becomes an adult. Like the ghosts teach him how to do ghostly things. Like he can fade. He can literally like make himself unnoticed by people. He can um, make people have fear, like have other people have terror. And so you wonder, like, God, if he could retain those abilities, he could either be a really great like master thief. Or he could be an amazing uh, politician, <laughs> potentially. So, yeah, you seem like – and there's just one thing I wanted to read because this really struck me as I was reading it through that I, I'm not sure if this is the, the overall theme of the book, but it really stood out to me. Uh, again, with this idea of like a parent and raising kids, um, he's talking with Silas and, you know, Bod is asking, can he, why can't he leave the graveyard? Because they're and Silas tells him, well, there's danger outside. And so I just want to read this small section. Silas said, out there, the man who killed your family is, I believe, still looking for you, still intends to kill you. Bod shrugged. So, he said, it's only death. I mean, all my best friends are dead. Yes, Silas hesitated. They are. And they are, for the most part, done with the world. You are not. You're alive, Bod. 
that means you have infinite potential. You can do anything, make anything, dream anything. If you change the world, the world will change. Potential. Once you're dead, it's gone. Over. You've made what you've made, dreamed your dream, written your name. You may be buried here, you may even walk, but that potential is finished. And that just it just really struck me. Because I, I think you t- he took this idea of, again, I don't know how the idea came to Neil Gaiman, but he took this idea of like, ah, oh, maybe I'll do like a gothic redo of the Jungle Book. And then this section to me makes us about so much more. It's about this whole idea of what we think of as the coming of age story. That that's why I think we keep coming back to these stories over and over. Like children all have this potential. They could become great. They could become, you know, just kind of have normal lives. They could become evil. They could become good. It's like all of it is kind of open. And this idea that we don't have the weight when we're kids of what it means to be gone from the world, I think is such an interesting contrast to that. Hmm. Now, you, you mentioned earlier about uh, uh, voice, you know, the, uh, Neil Gaiman, the, the development of, of this this voice, this um, author's voice that he has, that is uh, so u- unique and, and so important in this particular, and he has in many of his other works, but in this novel in, in particular, um, and it's always an elusive concept, you know, how do you create voice, how do you um translate that to words onto a page uh, that uh, you know it when you're reading it that you're hearing something you know special but I don't know if you can tell what does he do to I, I don't know if it's something that can really be parsed out what exactly he does yeah it's interesting because the first time I read this was before I had published a book or even written I think my first you know adult attempted at a novel as an adult and no, I so reading it this time I was like noticing kind of how simple his prose is like a, the first line is there was a hand in the darkness and it held a knife it's like that's awesome what a great line <laughs> it's like it's a it's a pure simple image it conveys danger it conveys mood with the darkness um and so I, I saw this one section and as I was reading through it and particularly, like you mentioned earlier, how hard description can be. I find when I'm writing personally, like dialogue scenes, no problem. I can sail through those. It's always the parts where you have to think about how do I convey this to a reader, what this looks like, and all you have are the words on the page, you know? And so he has a section, and I'll, maybe I'll read it first, and then we can kind of talk about what he's doing. But it's in, it's in the chapter where Bod goes to the world of the ghouls. He goes into a grave that's called a ghoul gate. And he's traveling with them, and he kind of sees the city where they live. And this is his description of it. The wall of graves was ending, and now there was a road, and nothing but a road, a much-trodden path across a barren plain, a desert of rocks and bones that wound towards a city high on a huge red rock hill many miles away. Bod looked up at the city and was horrified. An emotion engulfed him that mingled repulsion and fear, disgust and loathing, all tinged with shock. Ghouls do not build. They're parasites and scavengers, eaters of carrion. The city they call Ghoulheim is something they found long ago but did not make. No one knows, if any one human ever knew, what kind of creatures it was that made those buildings. 
who honeycomb the rock with tunnels and towers, but it is certain that no one but the ghoul folk could have wanted to stay there, or even to approach that place. Even from the path below Gulheim, even from miles away, Bod could see that all of the angles were wrong, that the walls sloped crazily, that it was every nightmare he had ever endured made into a place, like a huge mouth of jutting teeth. It was a city in which all the fears and madnesses and revulsions of the creatures who built it were made into stone. The ghoul folk had found it and delighted in it and called it home. I just think that's lovely. And even as I was <laughs> listening to myself read it, it's like the way he writes it forces you to slow down and enunciate. It's, there's a musicality to it, you know, that makes you kind of hit the words. And say, even though, um, and that's one of my favorite episodes, but uh, even though I've, I've never visited this place, I, I remember reading it and being able to visualize it very clearly uh, what this place he was in looked like. Absolutely. And he does it with such, such few words. You know, it's like he just says a desert, barren plain with bones, a red city. The angles are wrong. This is, is one of those things that I think sometimes fiction can be great. It's like the, the um, almost the H.P. Lovecraft of it. You can say like the angles are wrong and that just somehow creates – if I had to draw that, I don't know that I could draw it, but it creates this great image in your mind. Mm. Have you ever had a chance to actually hear Neil Gaiman uh, read um, this book by, by any chance? I haven't heard him read this one. I heard him read The Raven, I think. He did a while back for charity or something. And that was great. I mean, obviously he's got the British voice. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the British voice, but it's it's something I, I – there's no other author who reads his works quite as well as he does. So it's something – if you ever get a chance to hear him read this book, it's um, – um, it's I don't know what it is. It's just uh, he's, he's able to really – bring the book to life in ways that not, not every author uh, who reads their own works is able to. That's just something in his delivery, I guess. Does he do voices for the characters? Uh, a little bit, not too much though. Uh, he doesn't um, go too far. He does give some sense of uh, Bod when he's younger, but uh, I wouldn't say he does voices uh, so much. He does, does slight modulations. So you know, it's somebody different. But mm-hmm. uh, not so much that he's actually, I would say, doing a voice, if, <laughs> right. if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, – I, I go back and forth on that because I definitely – with my own stuff, I have in my head like there's certain accents. Like when I was reading earlier, I, the one character Scottish, and I was like, should I try the Scottish accent? Am I going to butcher this? <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious if he does it. Now, I know you had a chance to share a couple of passages. Was there anything else from the book that you wanted to share? From the Graveyard book? Yeah, the Graveyard book. I, I mean, those two passages were the ones that really jumped out at me. I don't want to spoil the ending. I just think the last the last chapter is is so lovely and interesting. And I liked how how much emotion he's able to pack into something kind of very simple. And I'd be interested to, like, you know, my son is nine. He's going to be 10 this year. And I'd be interested to see how he responds to this because I just felt reading it this time, this is such a book written for adults, particularly parents, (laughs) you know? Um, As they say, like, youth is kind of wasted on the young. 
it, there's just such a melancholy to this of all that potential that kids have. So it'd be really, but I, I just think the ending is, is just really stuck with me for a long time. Yes. I'm always fascinated in the differences between um, kids reading a book and the things they take out of it. And then adults who either read a book for the first time or sometimes reading a book from their childhood that they read again and get a completely different sense of that they didn't get uh, when they were a kid. Oh, absolutely. I remember recently, because, you know, my son is starting to get to this age where he's kind of, kind of read some of these books. So I was pulling out all my old books, like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Dark is Rising sequence that I loved. And I remember reading some of the Chronicles of Narnia aloud to him. And it's like, oh, this is this is dated <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, there's like comments about like, well, she couldn't do it because she was a woman. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> like this, this would not fly nowadays at all. Um, they're still, you know, totally charming. Uh, and obviously an incredible mythology that he created, but it's just amazing how sometimes the casualness of some of yeah. <laughs> the sexism and, and things that you see. I thought Darkest Rising was great. I reread that recently. That's a, I mean, I know that's been discussed in your podcast elsewhere, but that, that to me held up really oh, well. Oh, I think so. I think so. Uh, well, Matt, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to both talk to me about your own uh, Codex Arcanum series and to talk to me about the Graveyard book. Give me a chance to reread it and talk about it today. Thank you so much. This was really great. You can find Matt's website at www.mattharrywork.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com. Or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. <laughs>